Well, let's return to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, as we are in the providence of God, preparing for the Easter season, even while we have reached this great passage on Lazarus and his resurrection. John chapter 11. John 11, of course, records one of Christ's most famous miracles. As I mentioned last week, more verses are devoted to explaining the circumstances of this miracle than any other that Jesus performed. And last week, we made three important discoveries regarding this miracle. Here they are. First, the raising of Lazarus is John's seventh and final sign prior to the resurrection, demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Second, the raising of Lazarus occurred near the end of Jesus' public ministry. Chapter 11 is a central chapter in John's Gospel, but don't confuse its location in the book with its location in Jesus' ministry. When John 12 opens, we are only six days away from Jesus' death. John 11 is a hinge transitioning us from Jesus' public ministry to His Passion Week in Jerusalem. And ultimately, that hinge moment comes in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's the moment when we transition away from public ministry and we begin thinking about the Passion Week. Then thirdly, the raising of Lazarus triggers the final conflict between Jesus and the Jews that culminates in Jesus' arrest, trial, and death. All four Gospels take us on a journey through the final three years of Jesus' life, right through to a cross in Jerusalem. But each of them, especially John, tell the story in a unique way. Rumbling through John's Gospel is a fierce conflict between Jesus and the Jerusalem Jews over Jesus' claim to be one with God the Father. That conflict has been running all the way through. So let's review that also for just a moment. In John 5, Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus claimed that both he and, quote, my father were working on the Sabbath. And John records the Jews' hostile reaction as early as John 5. The Jews were seeking all the more, all the more because they were already seeking to kill him, all the more to kill him. So again, the cross was not some sort of last-minute change of fortunes for an otherwise popular preacher. Attempts on Jesus' life in Judea began very early in his preaching ministry and followed him all the way through. Listen to several texts. John 7, 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. 7.25, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? 7.30 They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. 7.32 The chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. 8.59 So they picked up stones to throw at him, 
but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 1031, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So again, the plot on Jesus had very deep roots in his ministry. And would you observe the aftermath of the raising of Lazarus? Look at John 11 and verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man, Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And notice the aftermath, verse 53. So, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. All of those earlier attempts on Jesus' life failed. But the plans we just read about in verse 53 are the plans that finally succeed in hanging Jesus on a cross. Now notice this, all of these attempts on Jesus' life precede what has traditionally been called the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry, as I've mentioned previously, was not a sudden reversal of fortunes for an otherwise popular preacher. Actually, down in Judea, down in Jerusalem, hostility toward Jesus began very early and was deeply entrenched. Now, last week, we worked through the first 16 verses of chapter 11. Lazarus has died. And Jesus returns to Judea, even though his disciples resisted his plan to go back. And Thomas, in a gloomy state of despondency, said in verse 16, Let us also go that we may die with him. And that brings us now to verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who was coming into the world. Now let's notice several things about our text. First of all, the geographical references in verse 18 tell us how far Jesus had come from the Transjordan region where we found him at the end of chapter 10. 
From the time a messenger was dispatched to find Jesus to his arrival in Bethany, some four days have now elapsed. And John does seem to pay particular interest in noting how long Lazarus had been dead. According to some rabbinic sources, the soul of a person would actually hover over the body for three days. And that soul intends to re-enter the body until it sees the irreversible effects of decomposition set in. Once that body began to decay, any hope of resurrection is now lost and the soul just leaves for good. Now, it's impossible to say for certain whether this view was popular in Jesus' day. Our rabbinic sources actually come from just a little bit later. But the view actually seems to be presupposed in our text. Later in verse 39, Martha again emphasizes those four days. Look at the text. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Well, this double emphasis on four days in verses 17 and 39 does seem to be an important clue as to why the family doubted the possibility of the resurrection. After four days, that spirit is just gone. It's irreversible. Lazarus is irreversibly dead, unlike others whom Jesus had raised previously. Lazarus is gone. No hope of resurrection. Now, I'm not, of course, endorsing that rabbinic interpretation of the soul, not at all, but I'm really pointing out that that may very well have been influential in Martha's thinking because that was part of rabbinic culture. Secondly, would you notice the geographical references also may be a clue suggesting the prominence of this family, the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Bethany is some two miles away from Jerusalem but still close enough that many Jews, in verse 19, just came pouring out of the city to console the sisters in the loss of their brother. Why were so many Jerusalem supporters willing to come out and visit the family unless the family had some sort of stature in the region? The fact that Mary later in chapter 12 owned a very expensive ointment to lavish on Jesus also suggests the family probably was a wealthy family. And then thirdly, the reference in verse 20 to Martha running off to find Jesus as he approached Bethany, even while Mary remained in the house, echoes a famous incident of these same two sisters found over in Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10, if you recall, it was Martha who busied herself about the house, serving the master, even while Mary just sat there at Jesus' feet. And on that occasion, Jesus mildly rebuked Martha, saying, You are anxious and troubled about many things. Well, certainly here also, Martha comes off as the more restless personality. She's the more anxious person than Mary. And it's Mary's, or I'm sorry, Martha's anxiety that is really strategic because it's going to give Jesus an opportunity to advance his teaching on the resurrection. That's really what's happening in this passage. Jesus has an agenda to advance his teaching 
on the resurrection, he is going to use Martha strategically, all right, to advance his teaching. Now, you and I have an advantage, actually several advantages, that Martha simply didn't have. We know what happens at the end of the gospel. Jesus comes back to life bodily. We also know what happens in Acts. The disciples spread across the empire preaching Christ's death and resurrection. That was the preaching of the early church. Every sermon in Acts mentions the resurrection. And we know what happens in the epistles. The Apostle Paul in particular explains that what happened to Jesus is also going to happen to us. He's the first fruits of a whole great resurrection to come. Right? So ultimately, this resurrection of Lazarus is just an arrow pointing to the end of the gospel where Jesus comes back to life and an arrow that points forward to a whole great resurrection theology that's still to come that Martha would not have understood. So, what exactly did Martha know? It's a very intriguing question. It's a question I think will really help us to interpret this text. In fact, not just Martha, but what did Jews of Jesus' day understand about the resurrection? Well, let's take just a moment and let's investigate this intriguing question. Now, I can't be exhaustive on this. There are scholars who write tomes on this question. But what sort of resurrection were the Jews of the first century expecting? What was Martha looking for? Well, at first glance, we are tempted to think that in verse 22, Martha believed that Jesus could resurrect Lazarus. I mean, here's what she says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. But was Martha truly expecting Jesus to resurrect Lazarus? Actually, most likely, no. Why do I say that? Well, again, later in the passage, when Jesus sets about to actually open the tomb and resurrect Lazarus, Martha just resists. Don't do that. Don't do that. Look again at verses 38 and 39. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. So Martha's thinking he's going to resurrect him. No. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he has been dead four days. She is not thinking he's going to go resurrect him. Doesn't sound that way to me anyways. Don't unseal that grave. There is a rotting corpse inside. So you've got to interpret verse 22 in light of Martha's resistance to opening the grave. So again, what does she mean in verse 22? Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Well, notice Martha, again, does not suggest that Jesus go over and open the grave. Her statement is actually much more general. Further, her statement emphasizes Jesus' special relationship with God. She acknowledges that God gives to Jesus whatever he asks, right? Well, whatever you want, Jesus, that's what you get. But the idea that Jesus might ask God to raise her brother on her behalf probably has not occurred to her. 
Jesus gets what he wants from God, but I don't always get what I want. That seems to be what she's saying here. Those two words, even now, in verse 22, are tinged with despair. They suggest that Martha has not completely lost confidence in Jesus, right? I mean, she still realizes that he's got a special relationship with God, even though he failed to show up in time to heal her brother. So verse 22 is a kind of expression of Martha's continued faith in Jesus, right? I'm still trusting you, Jesus, even though what I really wanted to have happen didn't actually happen. That seems to be what she is saying. I'm, I'm still believing in you, Jesus, even though you didn't come in time to heal my brother. Ever had a very trying experience where you just really, really beg the Lord for something? And you just kept asking him for this thing. You wanted his intervention. And his answer was, no. We've probably all had that experience. The answer is no. Perhaps you asked him to heal a parent, and the Lord said, no. But you nevertheless just still trust him. That's the sense of verse 22. Lord, here's my will, here's what I desire, but when you say no, okay, I'm still going to trust you. In Martha's case, she's saying, I still trust you, Jesus, because you have a special relationship with the Father. Now, that this is the correct interpretation of verse 22, I think, is confirmed in the next two verses. In verse 23, Jesus says plainly that Lazarus will rise again. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And we know what he means. But does this indicate Mary believes that Lazarus will rise immediately? Is that what she has in mind? No. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So clearly, Martha's not thinking about any kind of immediate resurrection at all. She's thinking about some sort of resurrection at the end of the world. So, if I'm reading the passage correctly, there's no indication in the text that Martha expects to see Lazarus again, her brother, anytime soon. And that leads us right back to our question. What exactly was Martha looking for? What exactly did the Jews believe about the resurrection on the last day that she's referring to here? What is that? Again, the study of beliefs about what happens after death is a vast, a surprisingly vast field of scholarly research. Dense, and I do mean dense, historiographical tomes have been published in recent years on the matter. Ancient civilizations had a variety of views concerning what happens to the dead. Those views are expressed through priests and through philosophers. Many, many people in the pagan world flatly deny the possibility of any kind of resurrection whatsoever. Others saw the afterlife as a kind of privileged destination for royalty. The Egyptians seem to have had this idea. But generally speaking, the ancients did not believe that people came back embodied after they died. That's very rare. That people actually came back embodied after they died. Bodily resurrection is explicitly denied in Homer, Plato, Pliny, and numerous other writers 
in the millennium before Jesus. They actually deny any kind of bodily resurrection. Now, there were no end, there was no end of myths about the afterlife. Myths about spirits and disembodied souls and states of bliss and torment. All this is true. Some sort of murky myths about what happens beyond the grave. But there's virtually no belief in bodily resurrection. Now, the exception to all this is found in some rather narrow parts of Judaism, especially later in Jewish history. Some Jews in the first century did seem to hold out the possibility of some sort of resurrection. And there were a few Old Testament passages that gestured in that direction. Details are slim, but there are some passages, and let's take a moment and let's look at one of the clearest. It's found in Daniel chapter 12. Would you turn to Daniel chapter 12? This is one of the clearest statements in the Old Testament concerning resurrection. Daniel 12. Daniel, of course, is one of the later writings in the Old Testament. That being the case, keep in mind that Abraham... Moses, David, Isaiah, these famous Old Testament saints never read Daniel. All right? Not everybody in the Old Testament read the whole Old Testament, right? Okay. All right, so Daniel 12 is one of the clearest expressions about the possibility of resurrection. But even so, it's maybe not quite so clear as you might think. It wasn't clear enough, for instance, to convince the Sadducees who denied the possibility of any resurrection. I mean, they're reading the law, and they think there's no resurrection. So let's read, beginning with verse 1. Daniel says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. Until the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, friends, that's one of the clearest depictions in the Old Testament of resurrection. But if that's all that you had to go on, what what kind of resurrection theology could you build from a passage like that? Clearly, the passage refers to some sort of future awakening event where those buried in the dust of the earth Come back. And it does refer to two destinies. But what sort of resurrection is this? How does a resurrected person shine like the bright sky above? What does that mean? Or like stars up there in the firmament. Is this bodily resurrection or is there a symbolic language going on here? It's a little bit unclear, is it not? Now, late in the passage, Daniel learns that he has witnessed certain things that for now remain mysterious. So verse 9 actually echoes verse 4. Look at the text. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end. 
that suggests that Daniel had stumbled onto some really interesting mysteries that he is not at full liberty to disclose as of yet. All right? Now, our tendency is to take the whole New Testament theology of resurrection to read it back into the Old Testament. That's perfectly fine. Take everything we know from Paul and read that into Daniel. Fine, we can do that. But Martha couldn't do that, of course. All right? Uh, when we're trying to ask Martha, you know, what did you understand? We, we can't assume that she knew everything that's still to be real in the New Testament. They didn't have it yet. So with that in mind, let's turn back to John chapter 11. In John 11, recall that Martha has never read a page of the New Testament. And she knows nothing of Jesus' own resurrection. <clears throat> and let's recall what I pointed out last week. Last week, we looked at Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, Jesus, for the third time, for the third time, explained his own death and resurrection. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And I'm going to resurrect after three days. Like he spelled it out for the third time. And listen to what Luke said. But they, the disciples, understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And recall, chronologically, Luke 18 comes after John 11. So if the disciples themselves did not comprehend Jesus' teaching about the resurrection, even after he explained it three times, and even after he resurrected Lazarus, right? We, we really can't expect Martha to have it all figured out. Again, many religious teachers in Martha's day, the Sadducees, chief among them, denied even the possibility of resurrection. So, what can we say about verse 24? Well, we can simply say this, she disagreed with the Sadducees. She believed there must be some sort of resurrection to come, right? But how does that resurrection come about, and what does it look like? And what's the answer? The answer, friends, is John 11. John 11 is a hinge passage which brings to a close Jesus' public ministry and turns our attention now to his Passion Week. John 11 is going to turn our gaze directly onto Jesus' own theology of death and resurrection. That's the function of this chapter. The point of the passage is to begin, when I say begin, a complete overhaul and reorientation of our thinking so that we understand what true resurrection is all about. And Martha is a catalyst for transforming our thinking. Let her perplexity just transform the way that we think about resurrection as we listen to Jesus' answer. What Martha does or does not comprehend, we cannot say with any kind of certainty, but what we can, what we can say is that her conversation is strategically situated in John's Gospel to get us really thinking clearly about what resurrection is all about. All right? So that's what's going on here in John chapter 11. Now, N.T. Wright, 
is probably the leading resurrection scholar working today. And I'm not endorsing everything about Wright, but I do think he has some incredible things to say on the resurrection. And I want to read to you a very important insight from Wright. He is not commenting on our particular passage, but the point that he makes really is quite relevant. He writes this, With the early Christians who came from every corner of Judaism and every corner of paganism, you might well have thought that over the first two centuries we would find evidence of all sort of beliefs about life and death held by different Christian groups. You've got, you got Christians coming in from all over the place. They're bringing all their baggage with them. The extraordinary thing is that we do not. From Paul, and he lists Paul first because he's the first New Testament writer, from Paul on through the New Testament, through the apostolic fathers, and through the great theologians at the end of the second century, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, we find a remarkably consistent set of beliefs about what will happen to God's people ultimately after death. So did you understand that? Let's make that really clear. We all know that through the centuries, people bring all kinds of proverbial baggage into the church. And what you've got to remember, in the first century, there were no second-generation Christians, right? They're, They're coming in from all over the place. Just because people embrace Christ, that does not guarantee that they immediately just sort of leave behind all their cultural, philosophical, and religious elements that they were nurtured in their cultures. We do it too. You can find elements of Hinduism, Islam, Darwinism, Marxism, Shamanism, Taoism, Hegelianism, Gnosticism, Epicureanism, nearly every ism you can think of inside the church. All through church history, you can find all this stuff coming into the church, all right? Missionaries who work in indigenous context will tell you sometimes it takes generations, generations actually to completely transform the thought patterns of people who embrace Christianity. And much of our own Christianity is undoubtedly shaped by our 21st century American context. You really can't get away from it all. We all bring our culture into the church in one way or another. All right. Now, given all those pagan backgrounds that are poured into the early church, and given all the variety of Jewish backgrounds and beliefs, and by the way, Judaism was not any kind of monolithic culture in the first century, given all that baggage, how does it come about for the first several centuries, Christians all across the empire end up with a remarkable or remarkably similar belief about the resurrection? They're pretty much all saying the same thing. That's the point that Wright is making. From the earliest days of the church, there was an established, a definitive doctrine of the resurrection held almost universally by all Christians. That really, truly is remarkable. I mean, from a historical standpoint, that is utterly astonishing that we'd all come out in the same place especially when you realize how many sectarian groups there were that crept into the church and how much false teaching there was that crept into the church very early on. The one thing the church seems to get right is the resurrection. So, how does that come about? Well, recall, again, Paul was the first apostle who wrote about the resurrection. 
The four evangelists wrote about the resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The early church fathers, the apostolic fathers as they're called, wrote about the resurrection. And the great theologians began writing about the resurrection. And there is extraordinary agreement among them as to what exactly it is. And I want to highlight all that background so that we really appreciate the function of a passage like John chapter 11. Early Christians disagreed about many things, but they got the resurrection correct. And what is happening in John 11 is that Jesus is establishing two bedrock foundations for our theology of the resurrection. There's two things going on here that are absolute bedrock. These are non-negotiables. You must embrace these two. The first is found explicitly in our text, and the second is foreshadowed as the story of Lazarus unfolds. All right? So again, Martha has some unclear but committed beliefs about the resurrection. That's clear enough in verse 24. But here are two truths, Martha, that you need. Two truths that need to be absolute bedrock. Here's the first one. Jesus himself is the source of all resurrection life. Jesus put it to her bluntly in verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Friends, that is an absolutely dramatic claim. Here is this young Galilean peasant standing under a sentence of death in Judea, and he claims to be the very foundation of hope for all who would live again. If you desire resurrection, you've got to look at Jesus. And friends, he is not talking merely about some sort of temporary resurrection or extending our life by a decade or two. Not at all. Jesus is talking about resurrection unto eternal life. And friends, this is the uniform belief of the early church. Jesus of Nazareth, that young Galilean peasant, is the resurrection. I mean, there's no exception. Jesus is the resurrection unto eternal life. And would you pay very particular attention to those two words, I am You know those two words? Those words are the verb form of God's holy name, Yahweh. God has many titles. But God revealed His sacred name to Moses in the burning bush as I am. Not I was or I will be, but I am. And friends, God at this very moment and in every present moment is the source, the foundation, the ground of all existence all those whirling galaxies above, all the glittering atoms that compose our earth, all the stars and planets, the fish in the ocean, the birds of the air, the creatures of the earth, all that exists is the breath of Yahweh. I am. Fundamental to God's being is life itself. Life is an attribute of God. He is life. And Jesus claims that very name, I am. I am. And then he adds that He Himself is the resurrection to life eternal. That's got to be absolute bedrock in your theology of resurrection. Now friends, how would you like to see Yahweh's creation restored? Yahweh's creatures return to life again. How would you like to open your lungs and inhale the breath of eternity? 
Well, Jesus, verse 25, said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. That's the answer. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the foundation. So, here's what's happening. Jesus takes Martha's abstract belief in the resurrection at the end of the world and transforms it into a personal belief in Himself. That's really crucial. So let me say it again. Jesus takes Martha's abstract belief in resurrection at the end of the world, and He transforms that into a personal belief in Himself. You want resurrection? All right? Believe in Me. And this, again, is the uniform teaching of the early church Vague beliefs about the afterlife won't do. They must be personalized in the person of Jesus Christ. Whatever mystery there was sealed up in Daniel has become clear. Jesus is the resurrection. The fact is, in our day, much as in Jesus' day, people all across our country have a variety of notions and beliefs and ideas about what life after death might look like. When you attend a funeral, funeral, you will hear all sorts of vague notions and wishful comments about where the deceased go and how they manage to keep on living in some sort of disembodied, romantic, blissful state. That's not unusual, even in our own culture. One of the most famous letters to come out of the American Civil War was a celebrated letter of Major Sullivan Ballou to his wife Sarah on the eve of his death at the First Battle of Manassas. How many of you have heard that letter? Right, you've heard that letter before. Many of you will recall the epic Ken Burns documentary in the Civil War, which prominently featured that letter, accompanied by the Ashokan farewell. And it really, it, it moves you. Listen to these lines, because these, these could be repeated by millions of Americans. He writes, But, O oh Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you in that garish day. In the darkest night, amidst your happiest scenes and gloomiest hours, always, always. And if the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be my breath. Or the cool air cools your throbbing temples, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for me, for we shall meet again. Well, friends, is that biblical resurrection? Nothing more than a soft breeze fanning the cheek of a poor widow. Do the dead come back? Shall we meet again? Will mourning be dissolved in the joy? And Jesus' answer is yes. Emphatically yes, the the dead do come back. We shall meet again, but His answer is qualified. You must believe in Me. I am the resurrection of life. Again, this is the uniform position of the early church for the first four centuries with hardly a dissenting voice. That is non-negotiable. Jesus is the resurrection. And that leads to a second truth. As I mentioned a moment ago, it's foreshadowed in the passage, and it's simply this. Resurrection is bodily resurrection. Resurrection is bodily resurrection. If that was not precisely clear in Daniel chapter 12, it becomes much clearer when Lazarus' body comes out of the grave. The body came out of the grave. 
But as I say, the Lazarus episode was merely a foreshadowing. Chapter 11 is a hinge chapter in the Gospel. It's transitioning us to the final week, the Passion Week. As I mentioned last week, the resurrection of Lazarus is the final seventh sign pointing ultimately beyond Lazarus to Christ Himself. So this is a sign. What happened to Lazarus? Okay, look beyond Lazarus and look right through to the end of the Passion Week and look at what happened to Jesus. The body emerged from the grave. When Jesus speaks about resurrection, what He means by that term is bodily resurrection. That's what Jesus means in His theology of the resurrection. At the resurrection, Yahweh, the great I Am, permanently resurrected His humanity from the grave. When early Christians came to suddenly understand that what happened to Jesus' body, what also happened to their bodies, their pagan ideas just melted away with hardly a dissenting voice. Now Sullivan Ballou's letter just pulls at your emotions, especially when you hear the Ashokan farewell. But friends, we're not going to come back as a gentle breeze fanning a widow's cheek or cool air passing by her throbbing temples. This is not what the Bible means. Biblical resurrection is embodied resurrection. This is the uniform teaching I keep on saying that because it's really, really crucial. But is that really possible? Can we come back embodied? And the answer is yes. Well, how would you know? And the answer is that's why John included this great seventh sign. Can Jesus call a dead body back to life again? Yes or no? Can he do it? Well, watch. Open the grave. So let me ask you the same question in conclusion that Jesus put to Martha at the end of verse 26. Here's the question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And what is the proper response? Well, look at verse 27. And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ. That's what really matters. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And that is exactly the right response. Would you turn very quickly to John 20, and let me show you that Martha, in fact, keep a finger here in John 11. Martha's response just points straight ahead, right, to John's purpose statement that he gives us in the aftermath of Christ's resurrection. All right, here's where it all comes together. Here's what Martha said. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's the takeaway. So look at what John said in John 20, 30-31. Now Jesus did many of the signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Here's the seventh and final one. Lazarus was resurrected. And why were they written? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's exactly what Martha confessed. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. Friends, that that is the confession of a church. You must confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Shall we pray together? And as we bow our heads, let me just encourage anyone here who has had any doubt or misgivings about Jesus, 
that you just pray there silently in your pew that during this Easter season, the Lord would just give you the faith to understand and the faith to believe. If there's any doubt at all in your mind, would you just ask that your eyes would be open? I talked with someone within the last week who is considering Christianity, and he told me something very interesting. He said, you know, I really feel like the Spirit may be opening my eyes. Well, that's good. So let me just encourage you to do the same. Would you just ask the Spirit might open your eyes to see Christ for who He truly is? Father, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess Him to be the resurrection and the life. Lord, we confess that He has the ability to raise our dead bodies back to life again. We pray, Lord, that during this Easter season, if anyone has any doubts or misgivings or misunderstandings, or desires to find out more about Christ, that they would indeed take the opportunity to do that. This is the most important thing, Lord, that they could possibly think through during this season. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would be with our sister Betty and the whole Jackson family, and that tomorrow would be a day of encouragement for them, that they would not sorrow as those who have no hope. Lord, that you would just give that whole family, Lord, confidence that your gospel is true and that our brother Larry will rise again and that all those who put their faith in him in Christ might rise again. We pray for Brother Steve as he does the funeral tomorrow. We ask, Lord, that you might do a work in the hearts of those who are there who are not believers, and there will be those there. We pray, Lord, that they might hear the gospel and be transformed in their thinking. We pray for Brother Joseph as he leads the international ministry this weekend with their retreat. Lord, if there are those there who don't understand the gospel and have not yet embraced Christ, that this, this Easter season might be the season in which they truly discover Christ for who He truly is. For our children, Lord, Lord, our children here have so many years ahead of them. It's difficult for them to think about the end of life because it's so far away. But Lord, there's no, there's no guarantee of another day for any of us. We pray that our children would put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. During this Easter season, they might be drawn to Him. Lord, we're just so thankful for this delightful passage, John 11, and I pray that it would truly transform our thinking and fill us with joy. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Children, let me just really encourage you, if you have any questions about anything that I've said, you go talk to your parents today. And uh, you know, your, your, your parents are the counselors that God has given to you to help you work through these issues. If you're here today and you want to find out more about Christianity, you want someone to give you some counsel, you're welcome to mark that on the Connect card and drop it in the box. We'll be happy to connect with you this week. If you'd like to connect with someone today, would you just say something to me at the back door on your way out? And uh, I can arrange for that for you today. Brother Tim, you want to come and close us out?
Our final hymn this morning is Fairest Lord Jesus. When we come to the second verse, the instruments will drop out and we'll sing with just our voices. So lift it up on the parts there and then it'll come back in to join us on the final verse. Please stand with me and we'll sing Fairest Lord Jesus. Choir will meet for practice after the service.